Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to talk about Michel Foucault's essay, What is an Author? Now, if you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in a somewhat accessible way, at least I try. Uh, so make sure to like, share, subscribe so that you can come back every week where I release at least one new episode for you to hopefully enjoy. Now, if you're not new here, you know, make sure to like, share, subscribe if you haven't already. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find it on YouTube where there might be a video. I don't know yet. Or vice versa. If you want to find it in podcast form, you can find it anywhere you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads, which is obviously more desirable. If you want to help me out uh, monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. And if you want to follow me, you can do that on Instagram where I uh, post mostly pictures of my cats. But I don't want to waste any more of your time chatting about that. Let's talk about Michel Foucault's What is an Author? Now, I wish to really be clear that to grasp what is going on here, you need to have an understanding of uh, Roland Balt's The Death of the Author and Michel Foucault's The Order of Things. Now, with that being said, you can still have a very fruitful engagement with this text without knowing those other two. And in in fact, I should be a little bit more gentle. You don't need to know those texts. They would just help. And I've covered both of them on this channel. If you want to go check those out or in podcast form, you'll be able to find them pretty easily. But this text is in many ways both a response to Balt, that is the death of the author, and a response by Foucault to his critics. And these are critics who followed his or criticized his book The Order of Things, or in French Les Mots et les Choses, which was released in the mid-60s. But as well, this is in many ways Foucault's critique of himself, and that is how in The Order of Things, if you're not familiar with the text, that, that's okay, but he takes on some pretty big fields, like political economy, like questions about wealth, uh, questions about natural science, and of course, to discuss these fields, he brings in many different writers. He brings in Marx and Cuvier and, and Linnaeus and, and a whole bunch of other people. But in this text here, What is an Author? He begins to recount that, him writing that book, The Order of Things, and he asks whether or not, just as he had critiqued political economy or analyzed it, should he not as well have analyzed his use of these authors using Marx alongside Smith um, and how it is that we're able to transpose and juxtapose that is put alongside authors from totally different fields. And he meditates on this and he begins to ask the question, well, what constitutes an author? How do we know what an author is? So one way to frame this would be when you write, um, let's say, a grocery list, are you an author or are you something else? And if you are something else, Foucault is wondering, what exactly is it that makes an author an author? Now, in doing so, he's sort of reimagining the question or the, the point that Balt put forward. Now, Balt very famously kind of called for the death of the author as almost a way to liberate the text, to open up the text to new possibility. And I've done a whole episode on that, like I've already said, so you can go and listen to that if you'd like or go and read the text. But Foucault is a little bit more skeptical. Foucault is not sure if we can actually, uh, I guess, signal the or ring the death knell 
of the author and to say that the author has in fact vanished because we must first acknowledge and and kind of um, understand what an author is before we can even say that. And then he moves from there to say, well, even if this author has died, does that necessarily mean that there's an opening up of interpretive possibility? And what I mean by that is that if the author is dead, then suddenly that does not mean that we uh, can find the so-called truth of a text by saying, oh, well, we know why this was said because the author explained that it was for this reason, kind of um, limiting the amount of interpretation that can occur. So Foucault is kind of skeptical about this claim that the author has died and then that the death of the author necessarily means an opening up of possibility. So that's the kind of brief summary of the whole thing, and now let's let's jump into it. So following the order of things, Foucault is responding to criticisms of his use of disparate thinkers like Marx and Linnaeus that I've already that I've already mentioned. So some commentators said that the distance between such thinkers makes their juxtaposition intractable. And intractable intractable means like um, unsteady or unstable. So these criticisms motivated Foucault to ask, you know, what, well, what is an author? How can we say that two authors can't be put, uh, juxtaposed, which I've already kind of recounted, so I won't go into a whole big thing about that again. Now, before setting out to answer this question, what is an author? He says that he lays out what he won't be doing, and that is he will not be looking at the socio-historical appreciation and view of an author in his words, how the author was individualized in a culture such as ours, the status we have given the author, the systems of valorization in which he, he, of course it's he, was included, or the moment the stories of heroes gave way to authors' biographies. Now, he's not going to talk about those things because those are like kind of outside of the scope of a more abstract question about what an author is, because these are like cultural things, uh, cultural appreciations, lionizations of authors that, you know, were relatively new, and, and we kind of get that. Instead, he wants to look at the relationship between an author and a text, and why and how a text implicitly points to, in his words, a figure who is outside and precedes it, that is an author. So when we are confronted with what we know to be a text, we are automatically implying that there is an author to that text. But we don't really search for such origins when we're confronted with like a laundry list or a shopping list because we are not there confronted with a text. So just as he's positing this question, what is an author? In very many ways, this his essay here is a way to grapple with the question, what is a text? Because these two things are very much linked. The idea of an author and a text or an author and a work, but even we're gonna to come to trouble that even a little bit. So just for now, let's, that's what we have here. So before, you know, to kind of set the foundation or set the stage for an in, a kind of investigation of what a text is, he identifies some key attributes of the text today. And he says that the text today has freed itself from the necessity of expression. So I'm going to explain what that means in a sec. It only refers to itself. Despite this, it is not bound by interiority. It implies a perpetual exteriority coded by signification. And those, those are my words. So ironically, such an exteriority repeatedly reifies and effaces 
the writing subject. So this relates to his broader argument in the order of things in which he describes the transformation of representation into signification. Or I could also frame it or phrase it as not the transformation of representation into signification, but the altered appreciation of signification over representation that he outlines in the order of things. So this is what he means I believe, when he's discussing how the text has moved away from the necessity of expression. So it doesn't just represent a thing or an idea in the world, but rather in accordance with a broader linguistic shift or kind of cultural shift that favors signification, suddenly we see ourselves removed from this appreciation of things replicating the world and instead we see the formation of various linguistic structures that seem to exist on their own, where they form a kind of interiority. But this interiority, because it is detached from representation, that is detached from representing something that has some kind of tangibility to it, even if it is just an idea, what we see then is a kind of perpetual transformation within the logic of signification. It's always going to be in flux and moving and changing. So it is an interior logic that is always exteriorizing itself, always moving into newness, always adapting, always developing. So such an exteriority repeatedly reifies and, and effaces the writing subject, where the text almost always gets away from the writer. Yet, as kind of a compensation, we always try to like position this writer to sort of ground the text, to give the text meaning so that it doesn't stray too far into kind of nebulous, um, you know, space-like uh, out of our reach. So this marks a, a shift. That is, it marks a shift from a concern with life to a concern with death. That is, in these constant perpetual transformations, suddenly we see a shifting as well in the kind of content of the writing and the relationship to the author. So no longer is writing a means by which to stave off or to uh, push death away, like with the Greeks, who tried to maintain the hero's immortality in so many cases. Today, instead, writing has license to kill, not necessarily in its content, but it's in, a, in its effacement of its author. That is, the death of the author always moving beyond it. So this is further reduced by the writer's status as a writer, a person without identity existing only for the text. So instead of there being a person behind the writing, there is instead the writer. And, you know, we so often have this kind of image of the romantic, romanticized writer, you know, hold up in a, you know, in isolation, left with only their thoughts, not having any kind of personality, desire, want, need, just being someone who is given over to the text itself. And in that, we see a kind of death of their character. We see a death of their personality in favor of them becoming a writer who is the focal point, a kind of um, anchor for the text that because of its move into signification is always uh, adapting, transforming itself. So in this author's death, what Balth calls the death of the author, we don't see 
an opening up of possibility for interpretation. Because in, in the death of the author, in its wake, in their wake, we have the emergence of the writer. Now, I want to just be clear that I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, and this doesn't totally reflect what Foucault is getting on about here. Uh, at least he doesn't say it in such a dramatic way that the death of the author marks the birth of the writer. But he is describing not an opening up with the death of the author, but rather a new way of foreclosing possibility with this new writing subject, this subject that is constantly being effaced and rewritten and, and re-effaced and rewritten um, ad infinitum. So we must ask, not only what is an author, but I've already kind of teased this, but what is a work? The idea of a work is contingent on the idea of an author, as I've already kind of made clear. So Foucault asks, what were uh, Saad's works, that is his writings in prison before um, he was consecrated as an author? Were they merely rolls of paper on which he endlessly unraveled his fantasies while in prison? That is, did they not take on the status or the title of a work? But were they this other thing that I'll just repeat? The endlessly unraveled his fantasies while in prison, the paper on which he unraveled his fantasies. So are all things an author wrote a part of their collective works? Where do we draw the line here? So should we include, uh, I believe the example he gives in here is like Nietzsche's laundry list among Nietzsche's collected works? Should we include Nietzsche's personal diary uh, to exist among his collected works? Or should we only engage with the texts that Nietzsche explicitly wrote to be part of the philosophical canon? But even then, we have to ask, as Foucault will get into a little bit later, how do we delimit? Uh, how do we set out to define the limits of a philosophical canon? Does someone have to say this is going to fall into this canon before it can actually be recognized as that? And this question extends to something like art as well. When do you call a work of art a work of art? Is it when a, a child is playing in the mud and makes a little uh, design in the mud? Do we call that a work of art? Does someone have to claim that their art is art for it to be considered art? And I don't have a question, an answer to this question for these questions, but just to put it out there. But if anyone has any kind of background in literary studies or anyone listening might seek to um, pursue that, that, that route, literary criticism, you'll come to see that anything can be interpreted. Nothing exists outside the text, as, you know, Derrida has so clearly influenced. So then why not? Why couldn't a laundry list belong to the collected works if it can be interpreted to have some kind of meaning? Now, Foucault takes this all a little bit further to ask, well, what is even a name, like a proper name? When you name someone, what, what are you doing here? So we already know that the author's name is tethered to the work that they are uh, ost ostensibly created. Whereas we don't know what a proper name is attached to, if it's attached to anything at all. So when we hear the name in the, in the Western context, uh, if the white men, Western context, if we hear the name George Orwell, we think immediately, oh, Animal Farm, 1984. We have these texts that are absolutely attached to the name. Of course, we don't think of any other like 
possible things he wrote or anything unless they were like like shooting an elephant for example or actual stories that he wrote we don't think of the possible laundry lists he had but when we are confronted with another name that is eric blair we don't think of 1984 and we don't think of animal farm even though that is george orwell's real name and it's just because we've you know historically that we were taught that george orwell was the name of the person that wrote it or wrote those texts and not eric blair but if you were to learn that george orwell did not in fact write 1984 and animal farm and the other texts you would have a completely different relationship with that person even though the person hasn't changed that we've historically associated with the the name that is the, still the same physical person we would have a very different relationship with them despite that fact that nothing has actually changed that is with the real person and their proper name and this is the difference between the author name and the proper name or if i for example referred to george orwell as eric blair his real name i would still be referring to the correct author of 1984 even though it's a different it's a different name so this reveals that we have a little bit of an intimate relationship with the author the author housing or being something that exists the author name that is being more than just a proper name like it must exist meaningfully within a certain kind of ideological frame because the same cannot be said of various historical uh, authors like homer for example whose identity we're not even sure of or anything or the many anonymous texts throughout the course of history that foucault will come to say doesn't really happen now or there's we have a strange relationship to anonymity within this this discourse within this framework today because we always try to find uh, a kind of real being behind the text which is what he calls the being of discourse because there is always that writer not the not the author per se but the the writer that kind of grounds that discourse but this only belongs to a certain kind of discourse that is we don't call someone who writes a letter an author we call them like a signer or you know someone who writes a, a laundry list is not you know being an author or a writer they're being i don't know a, a house chore person at that moment so the author name does not refer really to a person that exists outside of the text when we invoke the idea of an author name we are implicitly pointing to the author and their works whereas the proper name is referring to that kind of so-called real person behind the uh, behind the author you know the person that exists there so where does this implicit attachment of the author and work come from for foucault and this is keeping with pretty much foucault's entire uh all of his works is that it comes from a kind of penal appropriation a kind of punitive or uh system that seeks to force a kind of code upon people to keep them somewhat in line so this is the point at which a text could be transgressive and therefore punishable so it became necessary to you know be able to attach a name to a text that might be uh transgressive that might pose a challenge to the social order so that they could be you know properly dealt with so prior to authors there were and he he identifies that there were mythical sacralized and sacralizing fixture uh, figures and they didn't produce works really at least not in the way that we understand the work in terms of author 
work today. They produced acts, in his words. By contrast, a text is not a singular thing like an act. It is instead something to be circulated, something to be uh, exchanged. And a, maybe an overly simple way to think about this is to think about the distinction between oral culture and written culture, where in oral culture, there is no single author to a text. In fact, there are, or, or a story. In fact, there are many people that um, add to the story, that, that, that help it transform and mold into, into newness. Whereas with the writer, the writer is like the kind of um, strict authority behind it. And the writer is the thing that grounds it, even though it itself will move and transform in its own way. So no surprise then the author would would emerge alongside industrialization as just one point along this history of the written word and, and property. So the transgressive potential of the text was a compensation for this planned historical emergence, a way to inject the writing with more than relations of production. So let me rephrase that to try to make it make sense. Foucault locates the emergence of this idea, this implicit attachment of the author and the work alongside industrialization, alongside liberalism and, and property, where he identifies that people became, to put it really simply, really obsessed with owning things. So it became a matter of owning your work. And he traces this also to like publishing houses that and, and ideas about copyright and all this that wanted to keep a firm white knuckle grip on ownership. So it is at this point that the idea that a text could be transgressive, whereas in like oral uh, setting, you wouldn't have texts be transgressive, really, not in this sense, because the text is always already bound up with the uh, hierarchical and hegemonic regime of capitalist production here. So it it's a, another way by which the text compensates by injecting some kind of transgressive message, even though for Foucault, he's a little bit suspicious. He thinks it to be almost superficial because the text is always already bound up with the dominant social and economic order that it limits its actual transgressive potential. So this obviously does something to this idea of anonymity because you can't copyright something if you're anonymous. So this, he, he looks upon this idea, this idea of anonymity, and he, he asks, okay, how, how has this been historically? Where he says that within authorship, there are variations of the rules. So Foucault recounts how science text expected an appeal to authority, that is historically, and therefore demanded names, whereas historically literary texts could be anonymous, like, uh, you know, to, like in the case of the oral tradition or like fairy tales written by folks like they didn't always have uh, names explicitly attached to them and he's very clear he's not trying to like develop a, a you know universal principle here like of course there are exceptions to this but he's just identifying this broad trend however in the 18th century he identifies a transformation in which were this uh, sequence reversed if an anonymous text is found the concern becomes over search for an author's identity so suddenly a literary text couldn't be really anonymous, at least at least not like appreciated as anonymous. There, the kind of truth behind the text had, be, had to be found in the form of the author. 
And the same, uh, the reverse happens as well in science, where suddenly there's a move away from having the authority of a science figure, of a science person, suddenly giving way instead to anonymity and instead only an appeal to the, mostly the ideas as being whether or not they're sound or valid in terms of a broader or um, in relation to their broader attachment to the overarching system of scientific uh, rationalism. So the construction of this idea of the author, that is, it's um, entering into this literary framework, is not a spontaneous thing then. It was rather the, um, it comes about through various, various formulaic and systematic efforts. And he traces back to St. Jerome uh, a similar kind of, um, a similar desire to lay out the foundations for the recognition of an author where St. Jerome laid out the necessary steps to determine legitimacy of author, uh, of author, authorial status over many texts they produced and whether or not it was produced by a single person or many. So number one, if there is a poorly written text among well-written ones, it is to be excluded from consideration. Number two, same should be done if one text conflicts with overall doctrines of the others or doctrine of the others. Number three, same done if one is written in a different style, that is, you get rid of the outlier. And number four, if there are temporal inconsistencies, then it can be chalked up to there being more than one author, which Foucault says kind of either it directly set the stage for this emerging uh, appreciation of authorship, or it symbolically did in that it was speaking to a kind of broader systemic shift that was occurring and it kind of captured that shift and it wasn't being prescripted prescriptive that is it wasn't like laying out the rules itself so of course these kind of tenets impose rules upon what an author can do that is they're expected to be like consistent which obviously restricts their potential so consistency is expected and if there are developments they should be able to be explained that is if there are changes in an author's like overall works like if one text is very much different than the others it is always like okay we have to make sense of this by looking at the author's like biography and finding out whether or not there was some kind of change in their life that motivated this change in their writing which is just to return to this idea of a kind of um transcendental a, a transcendent author that is like the all knowing agent of the text so despite all this, we must remember that there is a distance between the author and a text where we are sure that they imply one another, but there's still some kind of uh, break between the two where the author is not necessarily synonymous with the narrator within a text, just as the author's history is not synonymous with the writers, uh, with the writer who is immediate. So this is that distinction between the author and writer here again. So Foucault provides an ex the example of math like a math book, like if I were to write um, a book explaining some mathematical theorems or something. Now, in the case of a math book, Foucault identifies three different eyes or three different selves. He says there is the eye that writes the preface. There is the eye within the text who's like, I will prove that uh, one plus one equals two with this theorem. And then there's the I that kind of comes after the text who says something like, um, oh, if I had more time, I would have done 
this or rethought of it in this way. So the first eye, the eye of the preface, is the one that appeals to their kind of history as an author, as a, as a more as like a their person, where they're like, I'd like to thank so and so, uh, I'd like to thank you know funding from so and so, kind of giving a background to their own personal lives. Then the one within the text is totally detached. Foucault says that that one is kind of uh, kind of belongs to the theorems, belongs to what is being said, not necessarily who they are. And then the third one, the one that reflects back, is kind of kind of exists in between, in that it is their own personal look at the theorems, at the ideas presented in the text, and they're kind of negotiating them and wondering if they could have done it differently. So the author, for him, is comprised of these three selves. So then at this point, he gives a kind of summary on how he's constructed this idea of the author, and he says this. The author function can be kind of summarized as follows. The author function is linked to the juridical and institutional system that encompasses, determines, and articulates the universe of discourse. Number two, it does not affect all discourses in the same way at all times and in all types of civilization. Number three, it is not defined by the spontaneous attribution of a discourse to its producer, but rather by a series of specific and complex operations. And number four, it does not refer purely and simply to a real individual, since, since it can give rise simultaneously to several selves, to several subjects, positions that can be occupied by different classes of individuals. Now, in giving us these kinds of characteristics, that is, you know, the idea of the author existing uh, discursively and existing um, not necessarily as being a reflection of the person, but rather being attached to this idea of the text, as and as this idea of the author and work relationship being almost almost ideological, it you know it exists only at a certain point within um, human history. That is. Our relationship to the text it has to uh, be a certain way for that to happen after laying those out he says that he's only engaging with a pretty narrow idea about what an author is here so he's not really talking about as i mentioned earlier what like an artist that is uh, like a painter in relationship to their uh, painting whether or not they're an author and how do you necessarily uh, uh, disentangle their possible uh, conflation or being confounded. But what about these authors that have produced more, for example, than a text that is their own, whose work has spawned entire swaths of other works like Marx and Freud? So here he's beginning to ask, or he's asking, it's not just that we're dealing with someone who produces a text that's their own, like George Orwell writing 1984 like a standalone thing. What happens when we consider a writer like Marx or Freud who kind of birth a whole field of thought that spawns hundreds and thousands of other texts that essentially pay homage to that original thing? So these figures that do more than just write like a singular text that is their own, that open up a whole new field, Foucault calls them founders of discursivity. That is, in the case of Marx, he was not just writing a single book. He was writing an entire new, almost lexicon, like a new field of possible speech that completely determined and reshaped the relationship to the relationship to 
the world and people's relationship to the world, more or less. And he calls them also transdiscursive. That is, they're able to formulate new discourses and move uh, around them. So these founders of discursivity can assume two broad forms. So either there are, the, there are either those who create a new field that is a, adhered to, uh, for example, like a, someone who creates a new genre, and he provides the example of Anne Radcliffe and the Gothic horror genre, uh, or there are those figures, founders of discursivity, who open a field that welcomes disagreements and debates. So there, when someone writes something belonging to the gothic horror genre, they are essentially following the same um, kind of the same underlying principles or characteristics of that genre or else they'll fall outside of it and then they won't actually belong to it and they'll make their own little adjustments. But for the most part, it'll adhere to that. Whereas in the case of like Marx and Freud, who he says... Uh, you know, are also these founders of discursivity, they welcome or their their constructions, their works welcome debates and disagreements, whereas someone like Anne Radcliffe who founds a genre isn't. You can't do that unless you want to just completely exist outside of that framework. Whereas you could be, you could post a critique to uh, Freud and still be within the psychoanalytic tradition. But he provides another distinction here, and that is the distinction between uh, founders of discursivity in like a literary sense or in a philosophical sense, like in Marx and Freud, and those founders of discursivity of science. So to engage with a founder of discursivity of science, let's say like Galileo or Newton or something like that, someone like that, it, it, to engage with them will never alter the kind of mechanical laws or the kind of truths that they found. They put forward. However, an engagement with the, an FOD, uh, founder of discourse, discursivity of, um, of literature, philosophy, discourse, might change the whole field. So you can, a new interpretation of Marx might completely change Marxism, but you can't reinterpret Newton. You can't reinterpret Galileo. Like they kind of uh, restrict that possibility. They restrict that uh, possible engagement. So this is also to say then, and the same is kind of argued by Kant in the Critique of Judgment when he says that Galileo isn't really special, which is a, an extreme thing to say. He's like, Galileo was going to happen no matter what, but someone like Dante may never have happened, uh, where Kant, obviously privileging like poetry over science, says that uh, a poet can't, you can't teach poetry, whereas you can teach science. And science kind of corresponds to a generally positivistic teleological movement that will just happen, whereas poetry is not guaranteed to happen, and that's what makes it so special. So Foucault brings up this point, essentially, that is the distinction between a founder of discursivity of science versus a founder of discursivity of like philosophy or literature or something, just to really outline and to illustrate how problematic this question is like what is an author and how difficult it is to actually wrestle with so he concludes the text by dissuading us from thinking of the author as a transcendent transcendent figure as someone with an endless re reservoir of new knowledge uh, in fact the opposite is the case he says that the author as that is the person that is figured within uh, a specific moment of 
you know, power knowledge relations that is constructed in relation to industrialization, to um, notions about private property, all of that. The author is actually a very restricted being, not someone who brings up something new per se. So he looks forward to possibility of moving away from the search for an author in order to really open up newness that he thinks doesn't really happen when Balt mentions the death of the author or signals the death of the author. Instead, Foucault is still hoping for that to happen. And I just want to read here the last line that I think encapsulates it well, or the last few lines where he asks, what are the modes, or he, he hopes that the new questions will be once we have acknowledged this or moved away from this constant search for an author. He says that the new questions will look like this. What are the modes of existence of this discourse? Where has it been used? How can it circulate? And who can appropriate it for himself? What are the places in it where there's room for possible subjects? Who can assume these various subject functions? And behind all these questions, we would hear hardly anything but the stirring of an indifference. What difference does it make who is speaking? He asks, that's, and that's the last line. And yeah, that's more or less it. Um, I hope that I was able to make this text somewhat clearer for anyone that might have been confused with it or someone who hasn't read it yet. I hope it was a good enough introduction. Of course, you have to go and read it to get the real full experience. But yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might like it. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll catch you next week or in a couple of days when I release a new video. Take care.